Hi there, and great to have you along with me, Cleanna Nianlun, for another podcast edition of RTE Radio's Spoken Stories. Each time treats us to a new story from a commissioned collection of short fiction, read by its author or by a guest reader, with you, the listener, in mind. Each invited writer started out by thinking what independence conjures up for them and where it might take them today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. In its way, the series is a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. Here now is writer Colin Barrett with a couple of words about his story called The Silver Coast. My story, The Silver Coast, began with the image of someone sitting at a kitchen table drinking coffee with their friends in the wake of a sombre event. In this case, a funeral of a neighbour. The person is telling their friends about a wild, vivid, drug-induced experience they'd had a number of years before, and I thought there was something intriguing in that premise, in that juxtaposition between, on the one hand, this deeply subjective, transcendental experience that was so intense the person almost can't articulate it, and on the other hand, the grey, mundane, very public experience of attending a funeral. And in between those two poles lies the everyday world of human obligation, I suppose, and so the story became a kind of meditation on whatever independence or freedom is, does it lie in escape, in transcendency, in getting away from our duties and obligations to each other, or does it lie in somehow submitting to them? Writer Colin Barrett. And now, The Silver Coast by Colin Barrett, read by Eileen Walsh. Lorna watched the men through the glass. The garden was covered in snow, depleted of detail and distilled to its outlines, like a diagram for a garden. Her husband Sean and son Luke were out there, grappling with the rust-coloured carcass of the Christmas tree Sean had finally decided to toss. It was just after one on a bright, cold Thursday at the tail end of January. Lorna was standing at the kitchen counter, making coffee for the women. She could see the men's breaths clamouring in the air above their heads as they exerted themselves. She could see the shallow blue dimples of their prints wandering in sloppy adjacency across the snow. And between their sets of prints, the jagged gutter cut by the tree's trunk and the litter of dark needles that had dropped from the tree like a line of gunpowder. Luke, who had come to the funeral mass, was still in the wool charcoal overcoat his grandmother Anne had got him for his 13th birthday. The coat was the most grown-up piece of clothing Luke owned. But when he was wearing it, it only emphasised his slight shoulders and long, abashed neck. Lorna could see shaggy flecks of snow clinging like burrs all up the arm in the back of the coat. Sean was dressed like shit, in a nubbled hoodie, pulverised sweatpants and tims. He looked like someone on day release, which, in a sense, he was. Sean managed the bar of the Pearl Hotel in town. Thursday was his day off, He tended to sleep in late, 
usually with a hangover, and do as little as he could get away with. Not today. As soon as they got back to the house, Sean had been after Luke to help him get rid of the tree. Every time I looked, the being was still there, Kira Lavin said. If I looked away from it, I felt a sense of enormous trepidation. But whenever I looked straight back at it, the fear went away. Kira Lavin was sitting at Lorna's kitchen table, along with Denise Doherty and Lorna's mother Anne. Some years ago, Kira had travelled to South America and participated in an ayahuasca ritual. This is what she was talking about now. A guide took you into the forest and drank a foul black liquid and you hallucinated for hours, sometimes days. After she took the ayahuasca, Kira had encountered an entity, what she called the being amid the trees. She struggled to describe it. It was not human, but it had humanoid aspects. At times it seemed extraterrestrial, reptilian, even machine-like. It had seemed, in some inexpressible way, feminine. It had intelligence. Kira's sense was that the being had a message it wanted to communicate to her, a message that Kira intuitively understood was of the utmost importance, not just to her, but to all of humanity. But Kira had not been equipped or ready to receive the message. You know how people say you shouldn't bore them by telling them about your dreams? Denise Doherty said. Is that your way of telling me to shut up? Kira said. It so happens, I think telling people about your dreams is fine, Denise said, so long as the account is short. Well, it wasn't a dream, Kira said. It's silly to talk about now, but at the time, it felt like it was the realest thing that has ever happened to me. I think it sounds fascinating, Anne said gamely. Ayahuasca, Denise said. I'm an Ishkabaha woman myself. Together with Luke, the four women had just got back from the mass and burial service of Lydia Devaney, a woman from the estate who had died suddenly a few days ago. Lydia had been in her early fifties, a good decade older than Lorna and her friends, and a decade younger than Anne. As a consequence, none of the women had known her particularly well, but her youngest son attended the boys' secondary school with Luke, and that had been reason enough for Lorna to decide to go and pay her respects. Once she said she was going, Kira, Denise and her mother said they would too. Everything was close by. The church was in town the graveyard a ten-minute drive from the estate, the Silver Coast Golf Club in Enniscrone, where Lydia's family were putting on a meal for the mourners at two o'clock, was a quarter-hour drive away. The women were going to go to the Silver Coast, but Lorna had wanted to drop Luke back first, because Luke had done his duty for the day. Luke didn't really know Mike Devaney, Lydia Devaney's son, but he had come to the church anyway. Mike Devaney had been a wretched sight. 
a big lump of a lad in a suit that was clearly a size too small for him. He was a bit older than Luke, 15 or 16, and emphatically pubescent, with scraggly pork-chop sideburns and the bright red bulb of a cyst throbbing like a warning light on the side of his nose. He had small features squished into a broad, flat face, the brief line of his mouth and deep-set eyes crumpled with grief in a way it was hard to look at. Lorna was proud of the way Luke had joined the line to shake the hands of the mourners, and when his turn came, earnestly took Mike's limp, paw-like hand in his and offered his condolences. Because she was dropping Luke off anyway, Lorna invited the others back for a coffee. They all agreed, grateful for a break from the solemnity of the morning. Away from the immediacy of the funeral, the women were moved to talk, in a general and speculative way, about death. The topic of death had led to a discussion about the possibility of an afterlife, which had led to a discussion concerning planes of existence, which had led to Kira sitting here relating her experience with ayahuasca in a South American forest. Lorna gave the coffee grinder a final buzz, transferred the granules to the press, poured over the hot water. She placed the plunger on top of the press and brought it over to the kitchen table. I know it tastes good, but imagine if coffee tasted as good as it actually smelled, Denise said. Wouldn't that be something? Lorna said. How are the two men? Denise asked, nodding at the window onto the back garden. I think Sean's after knocking Luke over. There's snow all up his coat. Anne got up off her chair and went over to the window. Oh, he'll have that poor lad's coat ruined, Anne said. And where's he going with that tree? Lorna rejoined Anne at the window. Knowing Sean, I would wager he's going to dump it down the ditch at the back of the estate, Lorna said. He could just put it out for collection. He could, but that's not the way Sean's mind works. For weeks I've been telling him to leave the tree out for the bin men and he wouldn't lift a finger. Then, for whatever reason, he wakes up this morning and decides the tree has got to go right now. And that's that. No waiting for the bin men on Monday. Lorna and Anne watched Sean drop the tree, knock open the gate at the back of the garden, then he and Luke worked it out into the alley behind the house. They're making some operation of it all right, Anne said. There's this idea that men were more capable back in the day, Denise said. Would you say that's true, Anne? Are you saying my men are incapable? Lorna asked. <laughs> no more than mine, Denise said. It's hard to know, Anne said. You see all types, and then you see them come back around again by the time you're my age. Daddy wasn't like that, Lorna said. Wasn't like what? Anne asked. Like impetuous, Lorna said. Reluctant now to talk Sean down, even though he deserved it. Oh, 
your daddy had his moments too, Anne said. Sean and Luke had left the gate open behind them. It drifted on its hinges. Here's a question, Anne, Denise snapped brightly. What's your earliest memory? My earliest memory? Oh, no, nothing special. But as a kid, Denise insisted, pressing down the coffee plunger. The Doherty's had moved into the estate two years back, which made Denise the newest member of Lorna's circle. To make up for this, Denise had positioned herself as the talker, the coaxer. No one was allowed to be quiet in her presence. She went after anyone quiet, anyone attempting to hold their counsel, as if continuously cornering others might forestall her ever being cornered herself. Though it was giving Lorna some pleasure to watch Denise go after her mother. Summer, I'd say. Anne said, after thinking about it. Out on the lake, with my brothers and sisters. That's what everyone remembers, Lorna said. Summer. I remember looking at the little chewed-up spot on my mam's arm from her inoculation shot and wondering what on earth that was. One time I asked her and she said, That's from where you bit me as a babby. You tried to run away on me, she told me. And when I caught up with you, you bit me on the arm. That's what I remember, Anne said. And do you remember when Lorna was little? Denise asked. <gasps> of course, like yesterday. And what was she like? Anne looked at her daughter. Oh, no, she was the same. Now that I don't know how to take. Lorna said. It's the way time goes, Anne said. It becomes all of a piece. I didn't mean to do down your men, Denise said to Lorna, suddenly contrite. You're forgiven, Lorna said. Lorna was thinking about Lydia Devaney. The woman had taken ill in the supermarket. Heart attack. Word was she had died right there in the frozen food aisle. Right next to a bin of cut-price Christmas hams the supermarket was selling off before they expired. But that's what people were saying anyway. Lorna hadn't been there, but she was able somehow to picture the scene as vividly as if she had been. Poor Lydia. Down on her back on the chilly, sticky supermarket linoleum. Her trolley askew in the aisle like an abandoned car. The teenagers who worked there gathering around her, stricken and clueless, as Lydia gasped for air. The indignity of it. Lorna believed she had seen a man die once, at a beach resort, as a teenager. They... Lorna and her mother and father, Tom, were on a holiday in Nice in the south of France with Lorna's Auntie Moira. The man had died, or anyway, took gravely ill, on the beach, a few yards from them. Lorna could not say for sure that the man was gone by the time the paramedics strapped him to a gurney and totted him up the beach, but she believed she had seen him pass the threshold beyond which there was no coming back. The man 
had stepped out of the sea. She remembers children screaming in the surf, inflatables bobbing like bright trash, and farther out the clenched gates of adults as they waded beyond the bearably waist-high waves. Lorna had been Luke's age. Thirteen. Fourteen. And the man had seemed incredibly old, though he was probably only in his early fifties. His hair was bright white, and there was a moss of coiled, lewdly dripping hair on his chest. He had scrawny legs and a paunch. He was with a woman, probably his wife. The wife was sitting on a towel with her knees drawn up to her bust, and they were arguing in British accents, each declining the suggestion of the other as to what to do next in the injurious, teacherly cadences of the well-off British. The woman wanted to leave. The man said something about going back in the water. You do what you want to do, Margaret. Lorna remembers the man saying, and she could still hear him now. More than twenty years on, the low, patient note of deeply grooved spite in his voice. You always get to do exactly what you want to do. He was standing over the woman. And after a little while, he stopped his jeering and sat down on the towel next to hers, as if the argument was over. Then, in Lorna's memory, the man looked straight at her, teenage Lorna. His mouth was ajar, as if in surprise, and he was wearing a puzzled, mildly stunned expression like a man on a train platform who at the very last moment delays for some unaccountable fraction and must watch the carriage door seal shut right in front of his nose. He wasn't going anywhere. It was all at once going away from him. Lorna remembers the woman becoming alarmed and asking the man over and over if he was all right. At some point the man lay down, or toppled over onto the sand, rolling onto his chest as he did so, the bright white soles of his feet flashing almost threateningly at Lorna. Lorna can't remember where her parents or aunt were, but they were surely nearby. They would not have left her to her own devices. The woman was calling for help, but Lorna was just a kid. And even then she understood that a kid was not the answer anyone meant when they called out for help. Presently a pair of men in swimming trunks rolled the man onto his back and began pressing on his chest and administering the kiss of life. The man's wife could only watch, frozen in terror. Lorna watched too. She remembers the gritty divot her bum worried into the sand the salt water sourness she couldn't spit from her mouth, the smell of sunscreen from her own body. She remembers the ambulance arriving, the pop and swirl of its lights as it pulled in next to the ice cream trucks up on the boardwalk. Do you remember in Nice? Lorna began. Ma'am, 
Remember the holiday in Nice when that man died right in front of everyone on the beach? What? Anne said. We were on holiday with Auntie Moira and a man died on the beach right in front of us. Lorna knew by her mother's expression that she had no idea what Lorna was talking about. You don't remember? How could you not remember someone dying? Lorna said. I remember someone having an issue, an allergic reaction. I thought maybe it was a woman, though. And it, it wasn't in Nice. But you remember going on holiday in Nice with Auntie Moira. I was Luke's age. I do. Well, there you go, Lorna said. We, I, I saw a man drop dead on the beach there. Through the window, Lorna could see the men coming back up the garden. Sean slid open the patio door and the two stepped inside and began stamping their feet on the mat, the cold that came in with them spreading like a clear thought in the warm room. I think we better be going if you want to make this lunch, Kira said. Isn't it an awful thing, Denise said. Someone dies on you and you have to throw the funeral and then make sure everyone gets fed. Who died again? Sean asked. Lydia Devaney, Lorna said. Her son is in school with Luke. Is he sound? Sean asked Luke. I suppose. He's two years ahead of me, Luke said. Who cares if he's sound, Sean? Lorna said. Did we ever even talk to this one when she was alive? Sean asked Lorna. I talked to her. I talked to her on several occasions, Lorna said, though this was barely true. Fleeting hellos in the school hallways at parent-teacher nights, a two-minute chat at somebody's wedding. I'm drawing a blank trying to picture her, Sean said. Are you after tossing that tree into the ditch back there? Lorna asked. I, Sean grinned. Down she went. We threw it as far as we could, Luke said. You can't see it from the road. Someone is going to have to come and pull all that crap out of the ditch someday, Lorna said. Someday, yeah, Sean said. Someday everything thrown away will have to be gathered up and accounted for. Isn't that fierce philosophical, Denise said. You should have been the one given the eulogy, Sean. Sean scratched his cheek and smiled complacently. He looked at his shoe and with a delicate sliding motion eased a final tuft of snow from the edge of his boot onto the mat. Is there any coffee left? He asked. There's a drop there, Lorna said. I'd make more, but we have to go to the meal in the Silver Coast. Shite. Grub? Maybe I'll come so, said Sean. I'm starving. Where's your hat gone? Anne said to Luke. Did this man not have a hat at the funeral? I think I left it in Mam's car, Luke said uncertainly. If you've lost that hat, Luke, Lorna said. I'm pretty sure it's in the car, Luke said. Hats, gloves, scarves, glasses. He puts them down for a split second and that's that.
You never see them again. It's kind of a gift he has, Lorna said. You missed Kira here, telling us all about the fiend she met in the woods in Peru off her head on drugs, Denise told Sean. Did I? Sean said absently, pouring the last of the coffee into a cup. It wasn't a fiend, Kira said. It was a being. The women had moved into the hallway and were putting back on their coats. Sean followed them out. He took a sup of the coffee. Aren't you all good neighbours all the same? I think we are, Anne said. What'll me and Luke do for lunch? Sean asked. Lorna slipped on her coat and reached into the pocket for her car keys. But the keys weren't there. With irritation, she realised she must have left them sitting out in the ignition. Lorna, Sean said. Lorna opened the front door and stood aside to let the other women leave first. Just do whatever you want, Sean, she said. Please yourself. Eileen Walsh reading the story The Silver Coast by Colin Barrett, specially written for Spoken Stories Independence. Next time, Siobhan McSweeney reads the new story Present Perfect by Roisin O'Donnell. Enjoy all the commissioned fiction featured on Spoken Stories Independence wherever you get your podcast on rte.ie forward slash culture and on the RTE Spoken Stories website. From me, Cleon and Ian Loon, Thank you for listening. <laughs>